Good evening. Thank you, Evan. Great job. I didn't know when I asked you to pray that you were going to be singing, too. It's the Evan Woodfin show tonight. Having said that, why don't you just come up here and take the message? And <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the problem of time. Solomon begins in chapter 3 with a series of 14 opposites. He uses a series of contrasts to picture the total human experience. The whole point seems to be for man to realize that God, not himself, controls time. Someone has said, life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can spend it only once. I want us, first of all, to look at, as we consider the problem of time, that we need to recognize God's sovereignty over time. He says in verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes is probably the most famous poem on the subject of time. Peter Seeger set it to music in the 1950s, and the birds made it popular in the 1960s. You're not of my generation, you don't know who the birds are. They made it in a, uh, into a hit song entitled, Turn, Turn, Turn. Let's look at those series of contrasts. First, time for being born and a time to die. Solomon's description here is, is of the boundaries of life under the sun, that of birth and death. The first thing that we need to understand about God's sovereignty over birth and death is that they are not human accidents. They are divine appointments because God is in control. While we may foolishly hasten our death, there's very little we can do to prevent it when our time comes. In fact, there's nothing we can do. Scripture reminds us that our, our days are numbered. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In Psalm 31 15 it says, My times are in your hands. Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. And Psalm 90, verses 10 through 12 say, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Even for the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a time to be born. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law. And there was also a time to die. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Second, he talks about a time for planting and plucking. We might use the word planting and harvesting. The people of Palestine were an agricultural people, and they understand that a successful farmer knows that nature works for him only when he works with nature. There there is a natural time for planting, and there is a natural time for harvesting. That is also the secret of a successful life, learning God's principles and cooperating with them. The third thing he mentions is killing and healing. Interestingly, the Hebrew word that is translated kill is not the word reserved for murder. Therefore, this probably does not refer to war or even self-defense, but perhaps to sickness and disease. Within God's plan, sometimes people get ill and they die. And other times, he grants an extension, and the people are healed. Sometimes, God permits man to have a part in that healing, doctors and medicine. But other times, the healing is entirely a God thing. But the truth is, we still don't understand why one is taken and another is left. Fourth, there is a time for tearing down and a time for building up. This may bring to mind urban renewal. and There is a time when the old must be removed in order that the new may take its place, not just in the sense of old buildings, but also old ways of doing things, old habits, old attitudes. Fifth, there is a time for weeping and laughing. There is a time in life for both weeping and rejoicing, Both are a natural part of life. Some Christians wrongly maintain that somehow it is wrong for Christians to mourn. It's wrong for Christians to grieve. But the command that's recorded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.13 was not that Christians should not mourn, but rather that we should not mourn as those who have no hope. Six, there is a time for mourning and dancing. I think of this in conjunction with worship. There are times when the presence of God will move us to deep mourning for our sins. But there are other times when the Spirit of God should move us, and this is difficult for Baptists, to exuberant worship as David did in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 20 When he was dancing before the Lord, he returned the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Obviously, many of us as Baptists will dance for the first time in heaven. Number seven, time for throwing stones and gathering them. The land in Palestine is very rocky, and farmers have to clear their land before they could plow and plant If you wanted to hurt your enemy, then you filled his field with rocks. 
I mentioned before that there was a feud in my father's family between my grandmother's family and my grandfather's family. The feud started over the fact that one side of the family was clearing their land and throwing the rocks over on the other side, on the other family's field. This led to hard feelings, to harsh words, and ultimately to the death of one man who was killed over this argument. My grandmother's father shot and killed my grandfather's brother. So it was obviously a very difficult thing in their family. People also gather stones to build walls and to build houses. The better approach, obviously, is if your neighbor throw rocks on your land, build something out of it, don't throw them back. Number eight, time for embracing and a time for refraining from embracing. Charles Swindoll explains it this way. He says, there are times when we need the embrace of a friend who pulls our head close and whispers in our ear words of encouragement, encouraging us not to quit, reminding us that life will go on, that we will make it. Such embraces put steel into our bones, and they help us to make it through the hard times. Then there are times when the same person may take us by the shoulder, hold us at arm's length, and confront us with the hard truth. Now listen, I can't agree with you. I think you're doing wrong. That is not a time for embracing. Number nine, the time for searching and giving up. This is a problem that every rescue operation faces. How long do you hold out hope? How long do you search for people in the middle of a disaster? It's not too hard to know when to begin, but it's difficult to know when to stop. When to move from a rescue operation to a recovery operation, the point at which you no longer hold out any hope that anyone will be recovered alive. Number 10, there's a time for keeping and a time for throwing away. Warren Wernsby calls this verse a biblical authority for garage sales. I like that. There is a time when we need to throw away things. We need to clean out the attic. We need to clean out the garage and empty our closets of the clothes that we cannot or will not wear. But as Pastor Ray Steadman points out, this is also true of habits and attitudes. Resentments need to be thrown away. Grudges and long-standing hurts need to be forgiven and forgotten. Number 11, there is a time for tearing apart and a time for sewing together. This probably refers to the Jewish practice of tearing one's garment during times of grief or repentance. There's a time for repentance, but there is also a time to get up off our knees and to put those new resolutions and those new convictions into practice. Number 12, there's a time to keep silent and a time to speak up. I think every intelligent person understands that there are times to speak out and there are times to remain silent. But the problem is knowing exactly when to do each one. We all have experienced times when 
we wish we had spoken out but did not, and other times when we have said something that we wish we could take back. Scripture commends silence when the writer of Proverbs writes in Proverbs 27 and 14, and I like it the way it's translated in the, in the message. If you wake your friend up in the early morning by shouting, rise and shine, it will probably sound more like to him a curse than a blessing. That's for all you mourning people, by the way, from us who are not mourning people. My wife says I have a brief time in the middle of the afternoon. Some of you are morning people, some of you evening people, and some of us can't make up our mind. James warns those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. The psalmist request of the Lord that he would set a guard over his mouth and keep a watch over the door of his lips. And yet scripture also says that there are times that we are to speak up. One of the Proverbs reminds us of A person finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. And later he says in Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Number 13 is a time to love and a time to hate. Are there things that we as Christians should hate? We're usually told that we are not to hate anything. I think we can hate senseless killings. We can hate abortion. We can hate foolish wars. We can hate that children are starving around the world. We can hate when our God is dishonored. And most importantly, we need to hate sin in our own lives. But what what does God want Christians to hate? The same thing that he hates evil. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 97 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. And in the Proverbs, there, he gives a list of things that God hates, and they're a little bit unexpected about what we might think that God would hate. He says there are six things that God hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. The last, number 14, is a time for war and a time for making peace. Sometimes, in the course of human history, war is inevitable. There are times when tyranny has to be resisted, but afterward there is also a time of healing and and rebuilding. Such is the nature of man. The second thing I draw your your attention to this evening is drawing conclusions concerning time, verses 9 through 11. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end.
We may not understand his timing or his purpose now until we step out of our time under heaven and into his purpose, eternity. But one thing we can know is that God's timing is always appropriate. He says he has made everything beautiful in his time. The word can also be translated appropriate. You may remember the song, In His Time. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me the way as you're teaching me your way that you may that you will do just what you say in your time. In your time, you make all things beautiful in your time. Lord, my life to you I bring. May each song that I have to sing be a lovely thing in your time. Rather than being frustrated when things do not seem to run according to our schedule, we need to learn to trust in God's timing. Secondly, God has put eternity in our hearts. The King James translates this verse, he has set the world in their hearts. But the word that is translated world is used more than 300 times to indicate indefinite continuance into the future and therefore is probably better understood as eternity. Missionary Don Richardson was a missionary to Dutch New Guinea. He was a missionary to a tribe of headhunters named the Sawi tribe. He wrote a book called The Peace Child many years ago. He discovered that although this tribe of headhunters prized treachery as the highest virtue They had a very odd custom, unusual custom, when reconciling with another tribe after war. The chief's own son would be offered to the tribe as a peace child. In that, Richardson saw a parable of the gospel in which the chief of all chiefs made peace with the lost tribe of humanity by offering his own son. In fact, that was the beginning for Don Richardson because he later wrote a book entitled, taken from this text, Eternity in Their Hearts, because he he describes the phenomenon of a redemptive analogy that is found in almost all aboriginal cultures, that they have some concept of a need for redemption. I've used this illustration before and I use a lot of C.S. Lewis, and I understand that, but I just have not found one that better describes what I'm trying to tell you tonight. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, That does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. God has put eternity and a desire for eternity in our hearts. The third thing I would direct your attention to tonight is 
perceptions concerning time. And we're basically talking about what God does. First of all, what God gives. Twice in the coming verses, we're going to see that he says, I know or I perceive. He says in verse 12, I know or I perceive that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. So how, does, how do we know that humankind is really any different from the animal kingdom? We certainly hear that truth being attacked today by individuals crying out that any animal that is killed for any reason, even food, is murder. And yet these same individuals have no qualms when it comes to the killing of human babies by abortion. What God gives is the ability to enjoy life. He gives us the ability to enjoy life. And one of the surprising things about the book of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon says, back up, sit down, and enjoy what you have. Enjoy life. Don't be constantly looking for something else, some more fulfilling pleasure, but enjoy the things that God has given you. He also has given us the ability to do good. And he has given us the ability. And unless you've ever been really, really sick, and I don't know that I've ever been really this sick either, you don't understand that the ability to enjoy food and drink is that big a deal. One of the things that we take for granted is our ability to enjoy food, to have an appetite. But the truth is, it is a gift from God. In the last few years of his life, John D. Rockefeller, one of the world's richest men, could eat very little. Just one or two bites of food and a sip of water might be all that he consumed in an entire day. I'm told that he once walked down a New York City street and he saw a beggar eating a hot dog. And he said, I would give a million dollars to be able to eat a hot dog. We just don't really stop to think about what God has done for us. Not only what God gives, but what God does. Again, he says, I know or I perceive. I know, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does, it will be forever. Nothing shall be added to it. Nothing shall be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him that which has already been and that which has already, that which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. A couple of things to note about God's work. First of all, God's work is permanent. Whatever God does, it shall be forever, he says. Solomon assures us that what we do in this life for God matters. Now, he doesn't assure us what everything that we do in this life matters, but those things which we do for God in this life matter. The work of God endures forever, including whatever good work we do in the name of the Lord. Therefore, our labor and our lives are not in vain. 
As the Apostle Paul admonishes us in the New Testament, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we first of all know that God's works are permanent, and we also know that God's works are complete. He says nothing can be added and nothing shall be taken from it. There's an old hymn that we have sang many times over the years. It says, why should I feel discouraged and why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? And Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free, his eyes on the sparrow, and know he watches me. Three things very quickly that I would give you in conclusion. If you want to have God's wisdom concerning your life, first of all, wait for God's timing. That's difficult for us to do, but it is true. Sometimes we rush God's timing. Sometimes When God shuts the door, we open a window. Sometimes when he shuts the door, we pound the door open. Sometimes we just need to wait on God's timing. Secondly, we need to live like we're dying. You know, if we lived every day as if this might be our last day, how much it would change the way we live our lives. And then finally, wisely use your time today. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, for its teaching and its direction and its admonition of us. We need your constant care. We need your constant presence in our lives, and we need you to help us and guide us through this life. Father, there are times, I'm sure, that we feel much like Solomon did, wondering whether our lives might have purpose. But you have assured us anything that we do in your name, those things that we do to advance your kingdom will remain. And so, Lord, I pray you encourage your people tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.